Yugoslavia's President for Life Tito got credit for unifying a family of multi-ethnic Balkan republics, at least for a while. There was eight distinct people. It was six republics, five languages, three religions, two alphabets. And I think that diversity is really something that we can experience even today. Coming up, find out what you can discover in the countries that emerged from the breakup of Yugoslavia and see why they call Rome the eternal city when you hang out in neighborhoods like Trastevere. You'll feel like you're part of a scene that's been going on for centuries. They used to say it's the Rome of the Romans, so it's the one place close to the city center where you can still get a feel for what Rome was. And travel writer Will Hyde tells us about the wild rides he's been on lately, driving to the Himalayas and mountain biking across Rwanda. I don't know if there's a paint color tea plantation green, but I think there should be because it was just so vibrant. I remember that most of all. Come along for the ride in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Are you an adventurous traveler? Coming up, Will Hyde describes his bike tour across Rwanda and the adrenaline-pumping view from his rented jeep in India when the scenery got a little too close for comfort. Plus, guides from the once-warring republics of the former Yugoslavia join us later in the hour ahead to take your calls at 877-333-RIC. They'll help you plan a trip to their neck of the woods. Let's start out today in Rome with insider advice that lets you do as the Romans do to enjoy the buzz of the city's liveliest neighborhoods. American-born tour guide Nina Bernardo has made Rome her home base for years. Ben Cameron divides his time between Rome and the U.S., and winery owner Cecilia Botai keeps an apartment in the city. All three specialize in taking American travelers around Italy, and they're here right now to take you into Rome's favorite neighborhoods. Cecilia, Ben, Nina, buongiorno. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Thank Rick. you. When you think about the characteristic neighborhoods in Rome, of course you've got Trastevere across the river, the historic, uh, gritty, poetic area. You've got the old Jewish quarter, the ghetto. And there are neighborhoods beyond that that are opening up. Ben, if you're going to Trastevere, it's quite touristy, mm-hmm. but it, you really should still go to Trastevere. How would you distinguish the visit to that salty, colorful, earthy neighborhood just across the river from center of Rome? Well, they used to say it's the Rome of the Romans, so it's the one place close to the city center where you can still get a feel for what Rome was mm-hmm. before it was largely rebuilt after unification in 1870. So you have a, kind of the narrow tangle of streets. It's gritty. I mean, you have the the buildings that are covered in, in vines and a lot of great it's restaurants, so a lot of good shops. And you've got things that are happening because there's tourism there. I mean, all sorts of very delightful places to eat and so on. And it's the, the epicenter of that is the St. Mary in Trastevere Church. So that's where you'd go and you'd be seeing a lot of tourists, a lot of picture postcard views and so on. So, Ben, when you're in Trastevere, you can hike above it all. There's a yeah, hill with the Janiculum Hill just above it. It gives you fantastic views over the city. But more than that, there's a fountain that predates the Trevi Fountain that was kind of a predecessor to the Trevi. There's monuments from the fascist era. And it's, it's also just a nice residential neighborhood. There's some great restaurants up there. 20-minute walk. or Gain some altitude. If you don't want to walk, you can take a taxi up and walk down. That's a good and idea because you got that Piazza Garibaldi yeah, there's the a nice, Yeah, there's a nice route. The Tempietto, which was the um, predecessor to the Dome of St. Peter's by Bramante. Bramante's this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're uh, enthusing about the neighborhoods of Rome here, joined by three Roman tour guides, Ben Cameron, Cecilia Botai, Nina Bernardo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Martina's calling in from Atlanta. Martina, you were recently in Rome having some adventures? I was. I was traveling alone. I'm kind of an adventurous traveler, even though I'm married. Sometimes I do solo travel. And last year I was uh, all over Italy, and I ended my trip in Rome, and one of the things I like to do is a bicycle tour, 
so I did a half-day bicycle tour to get orientation, and I kept the bike overnight, and I was really thrilled, a little nervous, but I was thrilled to see that even at night, I felt safe riding the streets of Rome. I'm thrilled that you did that. I'm thrilled that you had a great experience. The more bikers, the better. So you're a, you're a, a Roman who loves oh, yes. this whole new this is emerging my big biking culture. <laughs> and you know, Nina, it's just uh, remarkable to think there are bike tours in Rome, and and Martina they're just popping took up one. every they're day. Very popular, and conveniently, they let you keep the bike or, or rent the bike beyond the tour, and then, like Martina, you have a little chance to explore on your own. Exactly, and I felt like on the seat of a bike. I can cover so much more ground and see so much more, obviously, than if I were walking. And even if I had a bus tour or a car tour, you know, I can take my time. And it didn't matter to me if I got a little bit lost. Okay, fine. On it's a, bike, a completely it's different bad. way to interact with the city. Thanks again for your call, Martina. Happy travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Leslie's calling in from Sydney in British Columbia. Leslie, what are your great memories of some neighborhoods in Rome? A couple of years ago, and I had a couple of days extra in Rome, and I decided I wanted to do a food tour. So I went on this walking tour of the area of Testaccio, and we visited various shops and delis and markets, and ate our way through Rome in four hours. It was wonderful. I've taken that tour. You get four hours, and you must stop by eight or ten little foodie, hole-in-the-wall restaurants. That's right. At the end of it, the guide, like a long tongue twister, reviews all the things you ate (laughs) in the last four hours, and you think, wow, that was half a day well spent. (laughs) Right. It really was. And incredible value for money, I thought. What do you remember eating? What, What was good that you ate? I really liked the deli we stopped at. To walk into this delicatessen and just be met by the smell of the hams and the cheeses and, oh, you know, just talking about it, my mouth is starting to water. It's a great neighborhood. Um, There's a lot of great restaurants over there, too. And and I've done that tour, too. It's a lot of fun. You get uh, some historical sites. Yeah. It was a wonderful introduction to the food of Rome. But also what I found really interesting was the whole neighborhood in itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's very different from the, quote, touristy parts of Rome. It's an area where most tourists don't go. It's working Rome. It it really is, and it's sort of been the pantry of Rome ever since ancient times, and you've got this wonderful Uh, opportunity to meet little mom-and-pop businesses, and you're surrounded by ancient sites, and uh, it has this neighborhood feel. Easy to get to, too. It's just a couple stops down from the Colosseum on Metro Line B. Right. Pyramid. The other thing I I found really interesting was the Mount Testaccio. It's fascinating, yeah. Ancient Roman garbage heap. It's the most organized garbage heap I've ever walked that on. That is true. And you can actually see it. It's great. You can go in some of the restaurants and uh, see these pottery shards. Thanks for your call, Leslie. I'm going to turn these guys loose on that thought, okay? Thanks, Leslie. Okay. Bye now. Thank you. We're getting expert advice on which neighborhoods of Rome you can visit to experience fun like a Roman citizen. Our guides right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Nina Bernardo, Ben Cameron, and Cecilia Potai. In the case of uh, Testaccio, where Leslie was just, uh, Rome was a city of a million people 2,000 years ago. Yeah. It needed to have a port. It needed to have a lot of pottery to hold all of the oil and the food and Absolutely. the grain. Absolutely. And once they were broken, they would go somewhere. And they somewhere became something else with the passing of time. And you forget about what was there 1,000 years ahead. So this is how comes that all of a sudden 
you construct your house on a hall or on a garbage area. And what's neat about that is there's restaurants and bars and clubs They've that are around it that you right can still see yeah. the, the pottery shards. Right. And, and they were actually really extremely organized when they did it. So this yeah. is the Riverport, and they broke up the shards and they put them up in layers with layers of uh, lime in between. So they actually built it up. And then out of the bottom is where they've kind of carved out these restaurants. It's where they have a whole row of discoteque, where <laughs> uh-huh. the young the young ones like to go in the evening. And so you're going to a disco in the evening. You're dancing in this hill that's made up of these two thousand. And the next morning shards. you have the next morning you have a neighborhood produce market, which exactly. is just one of my favorite places in Rome. This neighborhood again is Testaccio, T E S T A C C I O. Now Nina. You live just uh, beyond Testaccio. In, I live right next to Testaccio in a neighborhood called Ostiense. Can you describe that neighborhood? Because that would be less touristy than places we've been talking about so Ostiense far. Ostiense is a great neighborhood because it was at the turn of the century that it became designated the industrial zone of Rome. So it's where the general warehouses were. It's where the first power plant was. It was where the gasometer was. So where they produced uh, natural gas for citizens' use. And a lot of these buildings then were closed down or abandoned in the middle of the 20th century, and some of them have now been renovated. So one of the most interesting museums to see there is in a place called the Centrale Montemartini. So they've left the industrial part of the old power plant in there, and they've juxtaposed it with all of these amazing statues that come from the Capitoline Museum. So, they so had this is sort of a spillover of the classic statues of Rome Museum in, right. in the center of town in an old industrial age energy building, and right. it's the Monte Martini? Monte Martini. Monte Martini. Uh, right. It's a beautiful experience, too, because nobody knows about it. You have right. it to yourself, and, and you want to get off the beaten path in Rome. It's a fantastic thing. They have jazz there some evenings. and so that's you know, They have a lot of events. The, the Romans know about it, but nobody else does. It's beautiful. And they have amazing restaurants in that neighborhood. They've converted one huge general warehouse into a place called Porto Fluviale, which means river port, because that's Uh where the river port was. And it's got a trattoria, pizzeria. You can go for an aperitivo, so a before-dinner drink. You can go for coffee in the morning. It's sort of every week or so, there are new restaurants opening up in the area. Now, Rome is bursting with new neighborhoods and new restaurants and new activities. Uh, Ben Cameron, Monti, to me, is the new Trastevere. Can you describe Monte? Because it's so close. It's just a five-minute walk from the Colosseum. Yeah, and it's kind of forgotten about. It's a residential area just north of the Colosseum that's bursting with restaurants and little bars. Very walkable, very characteristic. And people know about it. It's not undiscovered. But, mm-hmm. boy, if you want a nice place to eat. Yeah. There must be 20 good restaurants within a five-minute walk. And then you see all everybody eating on the main street, the Via Cavour, and all these tourist traps. And all they have to do is go one street over and find these gems that so- are... And it's got that kind of narrow cobblestone street feel that Trastevere has. A lot of interesting shops and vintage shops. And And they have the uh, the flea market there every Every Saturday and Sunday that's right outside of the metro stop. Mm -hmm. This is so fascinating to get up to date on Rome with people who actually live in Rome and know what's going on. Rome is a work in progress and the eternal city is ever-changing. Let's wrap up our little discussion here on ever-changing dimensions of Rome with just a favorite moment that you think travelers might want to know about that they're likely not to know about. One of my favorite places is the Aqueduct Park, which is on Metro Line A. You just go east of the city. It's a 15-minute ride, five-minute walk from there. You're walking through a residential area. You can stop at a store, pick up a bottle of wine, some picnic stuff, mm-hmm. and it's where three aqueducts, ancient aqueducts, converge, and these beautiful ruins arches and everything above ground. And it's this beautiful combination of nature and ruins where the Romans go to barbecue to play soccer. They have concerts. You never see any tourists mm-hmm. out there. There's a golf course. People jog. Gorgeous. Romans love it. Sort of inspirational, breathtaking mm-hmm. aqueducts loping across the field, reminding us that 2,000 years ago, Rome was an amazing city. Cecilia, what would you share? If you have a family, there is a district which is now expanding. You know that Rome is a city where social life is outside. Mm-hmm. 
the squares are very important. And this area that is close to a bridge called Ponte Milvio mm. has now several grab-and-go places where mm. you can have a happy hour. So the place where you get the wine or the happy hour is like a closet, but all, all the space outside. So you have 800 people having a drink with the families, with the children, because this is a residential area that has developed in the 70s. Ponte Milvio. That's Ponte. a great place to connect with locals and, and go to a little hole in the wall. That's a great way to connect with locals with families, I would say. And Nino. Okay, if you want to hang out with hipsters, you absolutely have to go to Pigneto, which is a neighborhood we haven't mentioned yet. It's a little bit off the beaten path, but you can get there easily from Ted Mini train station on the 19 tram. Pigneto. Pigneto. There's a, a pedestrian area that's full of bars and restaurants. It's the only place in Rome to meet a hipster. Very nice. Nina? Cecilia, Ben, mille grazie. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thanks. I like to sit aside, walk cafe and look in shop windows, walk in the rain, have fun and maybe some excitement. First wish, one sidewalk cafe coming right up. You'll find links to learn more about our guests in this week's show details. We update what you'll find each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Guides from Slovenia and Bosnia will take your calls to help you plan a great trip to the countries of the former Yugoslavia. That's in just a bit. Up next, travel writer Will Hyde describes some gnarly adventures he's been on lately, driving across India, up to an isolated monastery in the Himalayas, and trying out a bike tour of Rwanda in Africa's Great Lakes region. You can count on a great adventure each week, right here on Travel with Rick Steves. London-based travel writer Will Hyde doesn't seem to stay put for long. Since he last joined us, he's been to rodeos in Louisiana and Las Vegas and gotten lost hiking in Japan. His latest adventures include three bone-rattling days surviving an SUV on what passes for a highway from Delhi to the remote Spiti Valley near India's border with Tibet. And he tried out a mountain bike tour past tea plantations and into a mountain gorilla reserve in the Thousand Hills region of Rwanda. Will, glad you could make it back to travel with Rick Steves. No problem, Rick. Thank you for asking me. Wow. Rwanda and then way up in the north of uh, India going up into the Himalayas. Uh, One by bike, one by SUV. Let's talk about Rwanda first. When we think about Rwanda, we think of the genocide back in 1994. What, a a million people killed in 100 days? That's right. Everybody I talk to now, Rwanda, it's a whole different day in Rwanda. It's a very positive time. Give us the context. What's it like in Rwanda today for a visitor? For a visitor, it's it's very safe. I mean, I haven't been to a place like this for a long while where so many people have asked me beforehand, oh, is it safe? Is it safe? And uh, I was there for just over a week, and I not never got any sense of anything other than complete safety when I was there. So I would say, if anyone's worried about going, don't be. There is a legacy of 1994, which, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but I mean, I've never been to any place on the planet where people were so reluctant to have their photograph taken, for example. They were all very friendly, but no one wanted their photograph taken. And I just wondered if that was a a legacy of 94 and, you know, what the leftover scars are from that. Um, Certainly people didn't really want to talk about it. And in the capital, Kigali, you can go and see the, the Genocide Museum, which I would certainly recommend. But as you mentioned, the statistic is approximately a million people killed in 100 days. So obviously that has left a legacy. In terms of visiting, 
they're definitely putting that behind them and I can really recommend it as a, as a place to visit. It's a little landlocked country, tiny by African standards, just on the northern end of uh, South Africa, isn't it? It's below Uganda to the right of the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and sort of just inland from Tanzania. Okay. Um, and it certainly is very small. I think it's, uh, from a European context, a couple of times the size of Wales. I'm not sure what that would be in, in terms of U.S. states. Uh, getting around, it's got a good road system, but it does take quite a while to get from A to B, essentially because, as, as again you mentioned, it, they, it's nicknamed the Land of a Thousand Hills, mm-hmm. uh, which I only found out about when I got there uh, on my bicycle. There was the uh, different warring tribes and killing each other and cutting off people's arms and all that kind of stuff, but that's 20 years ago. Are the different communities actually mixing it up now? Is there an attempt by the government to have people living together, or is it still sort of an armed truce? I wouldn't say it's an armed truce. I mean, I, I don't know too much about the politics of it. I mean, essentially, back in 94, the Hutus massacred the Tutsis and more moderate Hutus who stuck up for the Tutsis. Now it's a, a Tutsi government, a minority government that's leading, and, and things do seem more stable. As a visitor, it, it certainly seems very stable. I'm not sure of the politics of it, uh, yeah, if you delve a little deeper. You even wrote that it's so clean, they don't, they've banned plastic bags. It's like the government yeah, seems they, to be they, very hands-on and respects the importance of tourism to their economy, which must be a big part of their economy. Absolutely. I mean, it didn't happen to me, but I'm told that at the airport in Kigali, you can have your baggage search for plastic bags, and you certainly hmm. don't see plastic bags there. And once every month, there is sort of an enforced community tidy up. But I mean, one aspect of that, which you certainly see when you get further away from Kigali, is there is no trash, but that's to a large degree because, I mean, they can't even afford Mm -hmm. soda or or chip packets. It's a very poor country. Okay, so you're on a bike and you're going away from the capital city through the countryside. Is it mostly completely rural? Are you biking on dirt roads through villages? Are children running after you begging? What's it like? You're on dirt roads the whole time. And obviously, as you're biking through villages, there is a lot of interest. It's very friendly. Loads of people come running out to see you, and they're all shouting and waving. Kids especially just think this is the weirdest uh, thing ever, because (laughs) I'm not a professional cyclist, so I was just in sort of regular T-shirt and shorts. But some of the guys who were on our trip had the full Lycra gear on as if they were doing the Tour de France. And Mm. I, I think some of these people saw these guys riding through on their bikes and probably thought they'd come in from Mars. I would imagine from a a village African point of view, if you see these guys on high-tech bikes with all of their fancy biking gear, they would look like uh, they're dressed up for some kind of bizarre festival. You wrote that the little children would come running at you screaming, white man, white man. Yeah, mzungu, mzungu. Wherever we went, uh, people were very, very friendly and and there was a, a good exchange between us. I am not the fittest person, I have to say. Rwanda is quite a heavily populated country, so there was never really a point where I could get off on a hill and just push my bike uphill because there'd always be some kids going, come on, come on. (laughs) And uh, it was good in some ways, but there were times when I wish I could have just got off my bike because the hills there aren't terribly steep, but they're all, they're quite long and they go on and on and on. And you think you've come to the top of a hill and you go around a corner and there's another hill and you go around another corner and there's another hill. But your, your tour organizer would have uh, lunches arranged for you, and would they drive ahead with your gear, and you'd stay in a, in a nice little boutique, uh, hardwood, thatched-roofed house, or what was the kind yep, of... Yeah, ab- absolutely. You pretty much got the nail on the head there. There was always a support vehicle, so 
I mean, you could always climb in if you wanted to. Uh, none of us did, but mm-hmm. it was always good to know that it was there. All the gear was taken on, and then we, we stayed at some nice spots en route. We stayed at uh, a tea plantation. We stayed at one very nice little place on the side of a lake where you look up and you see volcanoes in Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and in Rwanda itself, which uh, certainly made the beer mm. at the end of the day pretty sweet. Will Hyde is on the line from London to tell us about a couple of his latest crazy rides to the Spiti Valley in India and on a mountain bike tour of the countryside of Rwanda. Will has photos and stories from his many adventures on his website at willhyde.com, spelled H-I-D-E. Will, I want to get on to India in a moment here, but let's just, you wake up early in the morning in Rwanda, I can imagine the fog raising and the volcanoes on the horizon, and then you head down to the market, you got the smells, you got the sounds. Paint a little picture of, of the magic of being in the countryside, uh, waking up in Rwanda. I think the thing that I remember most about it is it's just incredibly green. I was there in November. I'm not quite sure when the main rainy season is. It certainly wasn't when I was there. But just there were tea plantations and coffee plantations. And I remember waking up one morning. We were quite high up and the valley was just covered in fog. And you could just see these volcanoes poking out of the mist. But then as that cleared, there was just just brilliant green of the valleys down below. And we cycled down through these tea and coffee estates. And it was just the most, I don't know if there's a paint color tea plantation green, but I think there should be because it was just so vibrant. I I remember that most of all. When you're biking through the countryside, did you have any concern about animals? Was that a plus or was that a a, a nervous dimension of it? Uh, No, because Rwanda is, is heavily populated. Someone may write in and, and correct me on this, but certainly didn't get the sense that there were any wild animals around. I mean, the only ones we saw were at the end of the trip, we went to spend a day with the gorillas. Mm. And then also after the bike ride, I did go to the east of the country and there's a national park there, Akagera. But I wasn't actually cycling there. So when you're cycling along, there's, there's really no fear of animals. You know, I've been on bikes and I've been on horses and I've been in jeeps and so on in different places far away. And sometimes I feel it's dusty and desperate and poverty-stricken, and sometimes I think it's fertile and simple and rustic. What was the general sense when you're biking through the countryside of Rwanda? I just think when you see things on a bike, the roads there are not great, so you're not going at very great speed. You just see things from saddle level, and you're out in the countryside. You're not in a car. You're not behind a glass windshield. It is a great way of interacting and meeting people, and you can stop and chat. And even though people there didn't speak great English, you know, there's a lot you can do with sign language. And I just think doing things by bike, I've done a few bike trips now, and it's just a great way to take things at your own pace and and get a lot closer to people than you otherwise might do. So you'd recommend a bike trip through Rwanda if somebody is inclined? I would certainly recommend a bike trip through Rwanda. I would say, um, having done it myself... It's better to get fit beforehand than right. fit during the trip because some of those hills are long and okay. you, it's a good leg workout. Get down and, and do some spinning, I would say, before <laughs> you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're uh, going on some crazy rides with Will Hyde. That was Rwanda. Let's head over to India. And you took a, an SUV tour uh, up the Spiti Valley in India. Tell us about the tour and generally uh, what was the itinerary? It was billed as a self-drive from Delhi, which I thought would be a good challenge because my driving is pretty terrible. And I've been in India before, and with all due respect to any uh, Indian listeners, Indian driving is also pretty terrible. 
So I thought I would be a good fit. Um, <laughs> and it turned out to be pretty much so, actually, because uh, apart from South Florida, I can't think of anywhere else in the world where people just do not indicate as they're turning left or right. And a lot of people in India just, you know, stop dead when they see a friend and there's no rhyme or reason and it's just mm-hmm. pre gank on the brakes. And <laughs> so it pretty much suited my driving. And it was billed on Google Maps as a 14-hour drive up to the Spitty Valley, which was just way, way out because the roads, once you get out of Delhi and once you get up, start going up to the mountains, it just takes forever. So in fact, it said 14 hours, but it took a good three days of solid nine-hour driving. And is this going from Delhi then north? And then was the destination sort of the valley itself or were you going someplace? No, the destination was the valley. Uh, I drove there in June and the destination really was to do a big circuit. But even in June, one exit from the valley was still blocked by snow because you're way over, you're around twelve to 14,000 feet. Hmm. So from Delhi, it's a drive north to a big city called Chandigarh. And then you leave the main highway and you go through a town called Shimla, which was where the uh, British rulers back before 47 used to go off into the hills and cool down during the summer. And then from there, it's a drive sort of northeast-ish towards the border with Tibet and China through a place called the Sangla Valley. And all the time, it's getting more and more desolate. But when I say desolate, it's extremely beautiful. And then the trees stop and then you keep on going up and go through this gorge and you get into the Spitty Valley. So the Spitty Valley really is almost, you could say, it's a a corner of Tibet in India. Most of the population are Tibetan and it's certainly very Buddhist and there's lots of prayer flags flapping in the wind. And so Spitty was the destination. Now you wrote in your article that uh, you, you passed a sign that said, you are traveling on the world's most treacherous road. What did that mean? It was a good stop for photos, that was for sure. Uh, There was a bit of a whisper that this sign may have been put up for a TV show just to give it a bit of an edge. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly the roads there are quite hairy. I mean, you're driving on roads where two cars cannot pass. So if a bus or a truck is coming towards you, one of you has to give way. And generally, it's, it was us because um, I wasn't going to challenge a truck or a bus. Well, do you just go over to the curb or is there a cliff on the, on the side of the road? Yeah, I pulled over so I was never on the cliff edge. But yes, there were definitely some big, big drops. And uh, something not to do before you go on this trip is put into YouTube Indian trucks going over <laughs> cliffs. Blind passing, no barriers, cliffs, one single lane road 10,000 feet up. Indian army trucks barreling in on you. It sounds like a not a relaxing vacation. <laughs> there were points. Oh, no, it was, very, it was very relaxing. You kind of get used to it. There were definitely points where I handed over driving to the Indian guy who was helping us. That is for sure. I chickened out on a good number of occasions, believe me. What's it like with the, the thin air and, and the dry lips and the roadside stops? Uh, just what's the day like on the road? There are lots of stops. I mean, you keep on thinking you've got to the perfect stop for a photo and then you go a few hundred feet down the road and you have to stop again because mm. the scenery, it is very desolate, but in a in a very beautiful way. You're at twelve to 14,000 feet. You've got rivers down below you. You've got snow-capped mountains. Uh, you come around a bend and there are monasteries and small little towns and white buildings, uh, houses with, with thatch roofs. Mm. And it's just very day to day. It's very sunny, but the sun is extremely harsh. You have to wear sunglasses the whole time. It is a very dry climate. There's lots of dust, very dry, cracked lips, which I'm probably at this point, 
I can hear myself talking and thinking of the listeners are saying, sorry, why go on this trip? Mm. Um, but it is just so beautiful. If you just Google pictures of, of Spitty Valley, it is such an incredible landscape and it is very harsh. And the people who live there, I think maybe because it's so harsh, they appreciate anybody who goes there and just mm -hmm. incredibly, incredibly friendly. And then you get to these monasteries which are over a thousand years old and you can pretty much just walk in and because it there's not much daylight the paintings and frescoes i was told they were over a thousand years old and they mm -hmm. are and i've researched them and there's no reason to disbelieve people but just looking at them you would never guess they're that old because mm -hmm. uh, they've been preserved so well because of the lack of light and also because of the dry air and it's just incredible that these paintings are so old this reminds me, when you hear about the treacherous roads and the, and the mind-boggling views, I'll never forget going through a long tunnel when I was heading up to Kashmir in the north of India once and coming through the, out of this tunnel, and then we just landed, perched on the beginning of this, like, dreamy valley, and the sign said, mm. you're entering Kashmir, welcome to paradise. And I remember back then there was Ladakh was further north, and there are these enchanting little corners of the Himalayas way up there in the north of India with the Buddhist culture, and if you can, yeah. if you can just get through the, and, and part of the charm is they're so desolate. I mean, if, if there was a freeway going up, there would probably be a lot different. So you, you kind of have to earn it, don't you? Well, this is one of the things they say about Spitty Valley. Quite a few people kept on repeating to me the fact that in Ladakh, there's an airport, whereas they say, you know, Spitty is how Ladakh was 30 or 40 years ago, because you're absolutely right. You have to earn it. There is no mm -hmm. airport there. So you have to have this three day drive from Delhi and, mm -hmm. and, the whole thing is that you've, you know, you really can meet no one else the whole time. I mean, we saw a few other Indian tourists and a couple of um, Israeli backpackers. But apart from that, there was just no one else around. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Will Hyde. His website is willhyde.com. We're talking about Will Hyde's crazy rides. Will, let's just finish our fascinating adventures that you had. Let's just finish it with an image. You've done this three-day ride. Your ultimate destination is top of the mountain, the Tibetan monastery, Kigompa. We're 13,000 feet up. Uh, you step into the courtyard, and you meet these monks that just go about their business. Uh, explain what that was like when you finally arrived at this Tibetan monastery in the top of the mountain. Well, it might be a weird thing, but the thing I really remember is you can go up on the roof there, and it was just the blue of the sky. And these monks just, it's a place of learning. Again, probably someone will correct me on this, but uh, I remember when they're learning, they like clap their hands, they slap their hands to emphasize a point. And I just remember the blue of the sky and the sound of this slap, slap, slap as they recite something or they learn something from a teacher. And every time they get a point, they clap their hands. And it's just this memory of, of the blue sky and this sound echoing across the valley. And mm. uh, again, if you put into Google Kigompa, it's halfway up this mountain. It's already extremely high, but then you've, it's just perched on this cliff. Uh, how they built it in the first place, I don't know. I mean, it, it's the remote end of very remote. And it, it is like you've driven all this way and this was the end point and it was a, a very suitable fitting place to come mm. to an end and then unfortunately you have to, to turn around and, mm. and do the whole trip in reverse. Upon arrival there, did you feel like a voyeur or did you feel like a guest? How did they receive you? Definitely guest, definitely mm. guest. You go to so many of these places and they are so welcoming. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely not a, a voyeur, very much a guest. Will Hyde, thank you so much for sharing your adventures. Let's talk again after you do another crazy ride. Thanks, Rick.
You can also hear Will Hyde tell us about his Blue Ridge Mountain road trip in search of the roots of country music. Look for the Travel with Rick Steves program number 294A. It's in the show archives from August of 2015 in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Up next, we get tips for planning a trip to the countries that used to be known as Yugoslavia. Guides from the region tell us what might tempt travelers to search out Europe's backdoor destinations in the Balkans. We're at 877-333-RICK. Do you remember when there was a country called Yugoslavia? For about a generation, President for Life Tito was able to unify the Slavic republics in the Balkans into one of the most liberalized of the Soviet bloc nations. It all unraveled in the 1990s when the news of breakaway republics included tragic reports of ethnic cleansing and the siege of Sarajevo horrified the world. But ever since the Dayton Peace Accords, the seven independent nations that emerged from broken-up Yugoslavia have been getting along, and the region offers a rewarding experience for travelers in search of cultural variety. Our guests all grew up in Yugoslavia, back when their country was still united, yet poised for change. Today, they proudly show visitors the impressive history and sights of their respective independent countries, each about the size of West Virginia or New Jersey. Tina Hiti comes to us from the Lake Bled region of Slovenia. Sano Maric is from Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Anja Kuznar is from historic Patui in the hills of eastern Slovenia. Tina, Sanel, Anja, welcome. It's good to Thank be here. You. Thank you. When we think about former Yugoslavia, you were all children when Yugoslavia was uh, falling apart, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was this idealistic notion of a, of a union of the South Slavic people, right? Mm-hmm. How do you sum that up, Tina, with your tour groups, if you want to give a, a very brief definition of what was the vision of Yugoslavia? Well, I would think the best sum up of Yugoslavia was how diverse it was and how it was able to be together for such a long time. And I always sum it up in the way that there was eight distinct people. It was six republics. It was five languages, three religions, two alphabets, and only one for Yugoslav, and that was Tito. And I think that diversity is really something that we can experience even today. So it was eight distinct Peoples, did mm-hmm. you say? What yes. were those eight distinct peoples that make up what we think of as Yugoslavia? Well, we have the Slovenes, we had the Croats, we had the Bosnians, then we had the Montenegrins, the Macedonians, the Serbians, and then we have the two autonomous provinces, Kosovo and Vojvodina. Kosovo um, would be yeah, Albanian, And then Macedoni- Macedonians as well. So, so yeah. very complicated. Now, Sanel, you're from Bosnia. Yes. In a way, that's the middle of all of this complex mm-hmm. ethnographic mix. Talk about the three different religions that Tina mentioned. Yeah, as as being central part of Yugoslavia, we have referred as Yugoslavia within Yugoslavia because we had all these people living in mm-hmm. a, in our area. So, especially afterwards, we ended up with the three major religious groups, mm-hmm. which are Muslims, Catholic Croats, and Orthodox Serbs, which are still living in Bosnia plus all the others. But we are talking about here three major national group that are now creating what Bosnia today is. Is there a feeling among the former Yugoslavian uh, people of a family of what was Yugoslavia, or has everybody turned their back on that whole idea? Are, are there still sporting competitions between ex-Yugoslavian nations, or is it pretty much that's behind you and now it's just the European Union? I wouldn't say that because we are there in a very small area and uh, I like to think of it as we are looking to our neighbors. Right. And since we are almost speaking the same language, it's so easy 
to communicate there, and we have created this area in which we are all kind of familiar with. We all travel. We have been in Slovenia, especially Croatia. The coast is amazing. Then people are traveling to Bosnia, especially. But the older generation have still this feeling, at least in Bosnia, a little bit of Yugo nostalgic that we call it. Yugo nostalgic. Yes. Anya, what is Yugo nostalgia? Well, for me, um, traveling south, as Slovenia is the most northern point of ex-Yugoslavia, traveling south uh, brings back the good memories. When um, we were partying together, we would celebrate all the festivities in the three religious calendars. We would celebrate the Roman Catholic Christmas, the Orthodox Christmas, and we would also celebrate the Muslim Bayram. Really? So during the good times, if you have rosy memories of Yugoslavia, let's say you can decide what you want to remember and what you don't want to remember. Exactly, Rick. There were some beautiful things about growing up under a Yugoslavian government. Imagine having three parties instead of one. That's pretty, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is pretty nice. Because uh, when I was studying uh, Eastern European studies uh, in my university days, I remember my professor said in that part of the world, uh, they always would say, my neighbor's neighbor is my friend. Exactly. Because you had an yes. enemy in between you, uh, so that's sort of the, the the difficult side. And there, in Yugoslavia, I think the region there is famous for remembering the history. Exactly, and being um, open to your neighbors, to your friends, of a friend, to be simply hospitable. That was the whole idea of Yugoslavia. So you would always feel welcome, no matter of your religious background, political background. And that was also the idea of Tito's brotherhood. So Tito was trying to get beyond this because I was thinking of my neighbor's neighbor as my friend in a negative way because you would have a common enemy. Mm -hmm. But Tito was able to mm -hmm. rise above yes. that. Absolutely. Now, you're from Slovenia. And to me, Slovenia is the, the lucky state of former Yugoslavia. It is sort of in the shadow of the Alps. It's almost a little bit like Austria. And it got away from all of the wars and almost no bloodshed. Today, is Slovenia... How does its economy compare to the rest of, of the region and, and the government and so on? As a Slovenian, what are you thankful for? Um, in Slovenia, we are thankful of being part of a well-known country known um, as Yugoslavia. Nowadays, we have difficulties to um, distinguish ourselves from uh, our Slovakian neighbors, as if we can put it this way. And we are still struggling to get the market for our products, for our services. So, um, in a way, mm, we have to be thankful for the past experience in Yugoslavia when we were the most uh, developed part of the country. And now we have to put ourselves at best to find the new market so, in the West. And mm -hmm. Tina, you are also Slovenian, and that's the little yes. uh, relatively small country in the north of former Yugoslavia. In what way were you the, um, the most developed during Yugoslavian times? And, and now how are you uh, taking advantage of that? Well, I think historically, Slovenes were always linked more with the Austrians since we had the mm -hmm. rule of the Habsburgs for such a long I time. Yeah. And I think it was that engraving into us the hard work, the organizational skills, the punctuality. So and, kind of, you were kind of the Germany of yes, that game. Yeah, and Germanic country in the whole group of... And the more, the further south you go, the more easygoing people are also yeah. because of the climate. So it's like Germany compared to Spain or yes. Italy or Greece, yes. not better or worse. Yes. Just there's just one different. is more orderly yeah. and, and more um, focused and the other is more, let's live for today. Yeah, and I think that was the reason why also all the industries developed the most in Slovenia. Even if you think of Tito's, our former president, he chose among his co-workers, there were mostly Slovenians. It was almost 80% of them 
that were in his office that were of oh, that Slovenian right? so origin. S- so he recognized yes. that. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Our guides, Anja Kuznar and Tina Hiti, live on opposite sides of Slovenia. And Sanel Maric is from nearby Bosnia. You can join in the discussion with your own questions and observations about exploring the countries of former Yugoslavia at 877-333-7425. Brian's on the line from Roscommon, Michigan. Brian, have you been thinking about visiting any of the former Yugoslav countries? Well, I have been for a long time. And it's largely because my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, came from that area. You know, it's one of those things where we'd like to kind of see where what it looks like and where they came from. And you're, you're thinking of going where specifically? Well, you know, we'll take a, a trip through, I think, Croatia and Slovenia with stops in Bosnia and Montenegro, but uh, the area that they were from, and that's where some of my questions might arise, is north of Zagreb. So near the town of Verzden, and actually probably not too far from, I think if I pronounce it right, Petui, Slovenia. Yeah, Petui. Petui. Who can talk about, uh, Anya, can you talk about those places? Well, yes. Um, this is near Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. Exactly. That area is called uh, Zagoria. Uh-huh. So these are the rolling hills of uh, Zagoria. You could find great winery estates there. Uh-huh. Little agriturismos where you could stay overnight. Agriturismos, so mm-hmm. these are farmhouses that farmhouses. rent rooms to travelers. Exactly. And if you're in for culture, uh, whenever I would go to Varaždin, I would uh, visit its cathedral and maybe listen to some uh, classical music concerts such as Johann Sebastian Bach's Christmas Oratorio and such. Now, Brian was talking about a, a town called Petui, which I know is famous for its traditional uh, processions and its wild celebration in carnival time. Is that right? Exactly. That's my hometown. That. That's You're from my Petui. hometown. Yes. Believe it or not, I'm... It's an easy name to remember, Petui. Petui, yes, as if you were spitting. Yes. Uh, it's a place uh, which has a Roman heritage mm-hmm. and uh, still you can stroll the medieval streets and find some romantic stories of former noble families living there. What happens there in carnival time? In carnivals... Um, all the locals get dressed and hidden behind the mask, so no sin can be committed. The party Wait a minute, takes they, they're, they're dressed up and hidden behind masks, so mm-hmm. no sin can be committed. Is that because they're anonymous? They're anonymous. So they can commit a sin, but nobody will know who did it? Exactly. Ah, it sounds like, like uh, the makings of a wild time. That's yes. in Venice. What happens in Venice stays in Venice. Exactly. What happens in Patui stays, stays in, in Patui. And this is carnival. This is the wild and crazy time that leads up to Mardi Gras before Lent. And it can uh, be up to one month long. So imagine people being really tired after partying for weeks. Yeah, my goodness. So, Brian, there's some, uh, I think, just knowing the enthusiasm the people of that region have for their heritage and their traditions, it's a wonderful place to travel. And I would remind you not to underestimate Zagreb. Very few tourists have Zagreb in their travel dreams, but I found it really quite interesting. Tina, if you were going to bring somebody to Zagreb, what would they enjoy? I think they would enjoy the coffee culture of the town. is just absolutely wonderful, and they do have some really cool museums. There is the Naive Art Museum. The the Naive Art. This is where we have these uh, idiot savant kind of farmers that can paint like amazing, but they have no, they're not inspired by anybody, they have no training, and they just paint this 
freakishly beautiful stuff. And there's another one, which I think it's really an awesome museum, and I have never seen anything like it in the entire world. It's the Museum of Broken Relationships. <laughs> the, wait a minute, the Museum of Broken Relationships? Yes. What is that? It talks about, you know, couples split, different really? divorces, and it's just, yeah, broken relationships. Zagreb. <laughs> so you've got the yeah. Museum of Broken Relationships, Brian, and, and you, you've got You can the, have your entire room there, like I have. I'm just kidding. Uh, Zagreb, and Brian, if I can just suggest to you, I think the best way definitely you can enjoy it is by going to the locals. You know, there is so much, it's very open society. As, we, as Tina says, coffee things. You just go on the streets, grab a chair, sit, enjoy coffee, and have a great conversation with locals. I love that street. There's a street that's pedestrian only, yes. and all these coffee shops, mm. and people are just, it's the Croatian good life, it feels like. Brian, thanks for your call. Thank you. Katie's calling in from Washington, D.C. Katie, have you spent time in former Yugoslavia? Yes, I have. I was a student in uh, Belgrade. I stayed with a Serbian host family. I was there for about five months, and I got to travel throughout Serbia, but also throughout much of the former Yugoslavia. I got to go to Kosovo, Croatia, Montenegro, Bosnia, and see a lot of Serbia as well. So I love uh, the former Yugoslavia. So now, I've never really found anything to wrap my brain around in Belgrade, uh, but you've stayed there for five mm-hmm. months. What, what was your take on Belgrade, the capital of former Yugoslavia, and today the capital of Serbia, right? Yeah. You know, I was there as a part of a peace and conflict studies program while I was in college. We were studying the wars of the 90s, uh, the Balkan Wars, and I don't think personally I would have been able to understand the history as well as I did being stationed in Belgrade. It really gave me a hmm. whole new perspective especially living with a family, you know, a a large part of what I did was experience daily life. So if that's what somebody's looking for, uh, I think Belgrade is a great place to do it. So you got a, I would imagine you got a Serbian perspective on the Civil War. Yes, absolutely. Um, It helps that we visited Sarajevo and Pristina as well, but Mm -hmm. um, predominantly what I heard most of the time I was there was uh, the Serb perspective. So Pristina being in Kosovo and uh, Sarajevo being in Bosnia, what about, in Belgrade, they have this brutalist architecture, just mm. walking around the city. What does it feel like? Well, you know, it was a little bit of a shock when I first landed in Belgrade. Um, I landed in early February, so things are pretty gray. The part of Belgrade I lived in is called Novi Belgrad, so New Belgrade. Yeah. All of New Belgrade is this brutalist, large buildings, um, very blocky, no frills at all. So is this um, what you'd call a Tito Gothic or something like that? I mean, this was the vision of Tito, big, strong, functional, practical. In yeah. comparison to other capitals in, in Yugoslavia, I mean, Belgrade now counts more than 2 million people. So it is really the yeah, big it is, city. It is big. It is big. Any of you uh, guys have some thoughts on, on Belgrade? Uh, have you traveled there? Well, I have been recently in Belgrade. I'm telling you, Belgrade is, is doing a lot to you know, make it more charm and appealing. But it is, I think it, nowadays it attracts a lot of you because they have quite an interesting festivals happening there and mm-hmm. they have proclaimed like Belgrade in top one des- destination in Europe if you want to have a good nightlife. Okay, so there's some young sort of wild club yes. scene there's uh, quite surrounded a, by brutal Tito-esque architecture. Well, they are kind of a reshaping it and I have been there in the time of Christmas and it was actually really nice. Really? Okay, that's the, good. The, the main street, the, the Knez Mihailova was really beautifully decorated and it was an excellent way to get introduced with Belgrade. 
Hey, Katie, you were in, in Belgrade in Serbia for five months. I would imagine you uh, ate a little food and drank a little uh, of the uh, liquor there. Uh, oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about your favorite drink. Well, of course, it has to be Rakia. That is the plum brandy that is homemade by most Serb families. The family I lived with um, made their own Rakia in their village in northern Serbia, um, bottled it themselves. You can get all sorts of flavors. You can get honey, plum, quince. It's pretty unique beverage. So this is like a fire water that is flavored with different uh, herbs or, or fruits. Uh, Tina, what can yes, you teach us Yes, that's a good about? way to describe it. Yeah. Tina, tell us a little bit about the rakia. Well, it's actually a must. You have to do it. If you come from this part of the world, it's pretty much every single former republic. We has have its own. our own drink, our own, I would say, potion. Oh, and we, we make it at home, and the best usually is always the one that comes without the label. Okay, because you know rakia. that that's the homemade one. Katie, are you okay with us getting rakia yeah. without a label? Oh, that's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I thanks, agree. <laughs> thanks, Katie, for your call. Thank you. I love when I'm traveling in former Yugoslavia to cross borders with fanfare. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it treat it like, I mean, it's a big deal. You're in a new country, a new yeah. rakia, a new mm-hmm. sort of pride. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sue's calling from Boise in Idaho. Sue, do you have any memories of Yugoslavia? You know, indeed I do, Rick. I have to say that I traveled to the former Yugoslavia in 1988 when I honeymooned there and uh, was fortunate enough to get back there a year and a half ago when my daughter Katie was studying there. (laughs) So you have two family members. But I can tell you that in 1988, we uh, flew into Belgrade. My memories then of the airport are, you know, uh, very bleak, very dark, and we hopped right over to Dubrovnik pretty quickly and had a wonderful time there before it was kind of discovered. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine a bigger contrast, Belgrade and Dubrovnik. It, that it was, and Belgrade was just our hopping off spot. Then, right. and primarily we spent time in Dubrovnik while we were there. But I was struck then with uh, the beauty of the area. Since then, I've been lucky enough to travel around again and have seen it through a whole new lens. The differences between obviously 1988 mm-hmm. and 2013 are profound. Well, good times now relative to more difficult times uh, as the country was breaking up. I remember uh, traveling from Belgrade over to Dubrovnik and going through a town that was called Titograd. Mm-hmm. Today it has a different name, but it was like Russia had Leningrad. We had Titograd. You had Titograd. It's but it's the capital of Montenegro. The capital of Montenegro. Mm-hmm. And that was a very um, communist-feeling town, I would say, to put it lightly. But I have to say the people of that entire region were so warm and generous mm-hmm. and helpful. So I think when you talked a little bit earlier about Belgrade, and earlier talked about a coffee culture. I mm-hmm. mean, I felt like there were people out on the street. Mm-hmm. They were enjoying people watching. And it was, it was a lovely, lovely experience. Nice. Well, thanks for your report. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. This has been a, a delight talking with all three of you. Anya Tsuznar, Tina Hiti, Sanel Maric. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the BBC in London for studio help this week. You can listen again anytime you like and search our show archives in the radio section of ricksteves.com. 
Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.